I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on one of the most central and fundamental areas of the, the Dharma teachings, the teachings of the Buddha. And this is the reality of impermanence. And I like to uh, subtitle this particular body of reflections a contemplation on what it means to live in rental accommodation. The fact that things change is something that the Buddha spoke of and pointed to again and again. And it's kind of interesting because it's not such a radical observation. And yet, it's something that the Buddha pointed to as central in the process of understanding that liberates the human heart. And he described this truth of impermanence, of change, as the elephant's footprint. And the elephant's footprint being the, the footprint which encompasses all other footprints. All that arises is subject to passing away. And this truth, the truth of change, of impermanence, dominates the world of things. Just as the elephant's footprint kind of covers and probably flattens the footprints of all other creatures. So this human existence, in a way we could usefully understand it as living in rental accommodation. A borrowed and temporary circumstance we find ourselves in. I had a very interesting and kind of insightful experience in a period of time in my life. Um, I had not long been married and my wife and I um, had lived overseas at a retreat centre, one of the sister centres to Guy House in America. And we came back from there after a couple of years away and we didn't really have any money or um, prospects of any regular sort. But we were very kindly offered a place to stay at a... Um, as a part of a, uh, a, a large sort of, I guess, mansion that had various things going on in it and were given a role of just kind of keeping an eye out on the old gentleman who lived there. And we didn't really have much to do, but it was good to have someone there and we got a place to live for free. It was really great. And we lived there for a bit over a year and um, yeah, just over a year after we'd been invited to come and stay, just as politely as we'd been invited to come and stay, we were asked to leave. And we uh, thought, mm, okay, yeah, well, can't really argue with that. Um, we didn't have to pay rent that whole time. We were very fortunate. And we moved into a, a friend's house who was at that time in India and uh, were there for a few months, then to another place or someone else's way. We, we, we moved around quite a few times. And then some good friends of ours bought a house. And it was a, quite a big house. And they said, actually, we don't want to live in this big house all by ourselves. Why don't you two come and live with us? We thought, great, why not? So we moved in with these friends and uh, about a year and a half after we moved in with these friends, they asked us to come for a little meeting. And we sat down together and they said, you know, we'd really like it if you'd move out. <laughs> the conversation was a little longer than that. But it was very interesting. It's like, mm, okay. I mean... We'd been paying rent there, but probably a little bit less than the market rate because they were friends and they understood 
our situation is we were both kind of mostly involved in Dharma service, not really earning anything vaguely resembling serious money in what we did. Um, and so again, it was like, oh, okay, here's this offering of a place to be and then the removal of that offer, the non-continuing of that situation. And, you know, we arrive here being born, not asking or planning or organising it, probably. At least, not in my case, any conscious memory of having done so. We just showed up, all of us. And then at some point, we'll get that little message from the landlord, <laughs> which says, actually, time's up. You need to go. And the landlord's not a particularly predictable character in this case. Really. And that's the nature of what we're dealing with. So the Buddha invited us, encouraged us, really uh, cajoled us, actually, I would say, in his teaching. He said, reflect on what this means for your life. He said, reflect on a daily basis on the fact, and this is pretty much the phrase he suggested, all that is mine, beloved and dear to me, that I will be parted from. Because it's true. All that is ours, beloved or dear to us, we will become separate from this, whether persons, places, situations, possessions. This is how it is for us. This is part of what it means to be a human being. We will be separated by choices, by accident, by intention, by random happenstance, by death. And acknowledging the truth of this, to see, yeah, we come together with things, with places, with people, with creatures that we might love, and then at some point we part. And this is one of the, the most sort of powerful expressions of that truth of change, of impermanence. And it's not inappropriate that we might feel sorrow or loss or grief in those situations. But what happens as well as that sense of sorrow or loss or grief is often that we're surprised when it happens. It's like we don't really recognize this truth of change, of impermanence, of things not lasting forever. Unless it's happening to us or happening right very soon or we can see it sort of on our doorstep, we somehow manage to not notice this or not really quite take it in. It's like it's all around. Nobody, even a five-year-old child, if you ask them, do things always stay the same? They'll know. They'll say, no, no, they change. We know that. It's not news to us. And yet, do we live as if it's true? Because... Truth is only liberating if we live in accordance with it. And so we might look, we might reflect and see how are we in this way? What, what goes on for us? I mean, I find again and again, despite the fact that, you know, I spend plenty of time talking about it, nonetheless, one doesn't in the mind always seem to have got the truth of this. And I remember very acutely an experience that happened to me around coming to teach a retreat here at Guy House quite a few years ago now. Um, and it was in June, and we'd been having this incredibly sunny weather for about a week, and it was really warm and lovely, and it was a rare year, I guess you're probably thinking. Um, but it was. We had sunny weather for a while. But I was packing to come, and I was thinking, actually, I haven't got enough sort of 
reasonably tidy clothes to go for a whole week in warm weather. I've got plenty of tidy clothes for wet weather and cold weather and damp weather because that's what we mostly seem to get. And I was really a bit stressed, actually, and worried, how am I going to do this? I've got these old T-shirts, but they're full of holes, you know. I could wear one, I guess, but, you know, T-shirts are fine, but not full of holes, you know. Um, And eventually I got to the retreat, and, you know, there was this whole sense of how am I going to get through a whole week of hot weather? Three days in, the weather changed, it turned cold, it was wet, it was raining. I went to my bag and I found I hadn't brought a single jumper. Or sweater, or jersey if you come from New Zealand, the same thing. You know, I hadn't bought anything warm. I was thinking, what happened in my mind? You know, obviously, I convinced myself, without realising it, that it was going to be sunny and warm for another whole seven days. Having had seven sunny days already, the odds of that, you know, what are they? Not high, not high. But it had been long enough, I just got used to it, and that's how it is now. Do we notice this going on at all in ourselves? Because it's really useful to look and see where this shows up. This misperception, where we tend to look at things in a way in which we're conceiving them, or believing them to be permanent, when in fact they are impermanent. And so it probably goes on all the time. I mean, it happens regularly on retreat. People report these kinds of scenarios where sitting down and, you know, it's been a few days now practicing. This is four days of practice. And actually at a certain point, suddenly things start to quiet. We feel calm and still and spacious and the body is light and bright. And it's like, ah, got it. I'm here. This is what it was all about. They wouldn't let it on that it was really about this, but it is. It really is. This is it. And I've got it. And we start thinking, oh, I just can't. This retreat is it's great. It's not long enough. I wish it was a longer retreat. Just another two or three days more of this. It's, you know, that's not enough. I, I, want, I, I should have come for a month. Maybe I'll come to the month-long retreat they've got in November. Yeah, that would be great. Or, or maybe, no, I'll ordain. I'll, I'll go to Asia. I'll take robes. I'll sit in bliss for the rest of my life. So we project that experience into the future as if it would continue. And of course, at some point, we realize, actually, I'm no longer in that blissful, open, spacious experience. I'm lost in a story in my head. We think, blown it, hopeless, can't do it, feel miserable. And then we're sitting there depressed because we've blown the only one good experience we had all retreat. And we're thinking, this is miserable. I don't want to sit here for another whole three days feeling miserable. I want to get out of here now. And again, you know, minutes after we imagined it was going to be bliss for the rest of our life, we've suddenly conceived that it's going to be misery for the rest of the retreat. And now we want out of here. When just before it wasn't possibly long enough. Do you notice how we do that? So often, when we're engaged in a reaction to our experience, part of what underpins the reaction of trying to grasp hold of the pleasant, the enjoyable, the lovely, the flattering and delightful things we might encounter, and equally what underpins our resistance to and our pushing away of that which is difficult, painful, scary, or 
hard to bear is some way in which we're not quite getting that this experience is not forever. When we experience something that's difficult, it's so useful to just notice that it's arisen. It wasn't like this all day or all week or all year. It's arisen, and having arisen, it cannot but pass. So we we pay attention to, we reflect on this truth to see how we are living, how we are engaging. I mean, in this retreat itself, we can notice, you know, after two or three or four days, actually it's not so hard as it was to begin with. We feel like we're a bit more in the flow. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I can just sort of enjoy it now. And yet we start to maybe treat it as if this really precious experience is going to last forever. We don't think that, but in some way we start to take it a little bit for granted. We get a little bit casual. It's, oh, yeah, you know, it's nice being on retreat. And yet it's this incredibly precious time. It's not forever. In a certain way it'll be gone before we know it. So notice what goes on for you around this. Ways in which the failure to see permanence or the belief in continuity comes into our relating to things. It shows up in the sense of phrases in the mind like same as. It's the, it's the, it's the same old, it's the same old breath. As if this is the same breath as the last one. It's the continuing breath. It's not the one that went out and came in and went out and came in since you last thought about it. But no, it's the same one. It's actually a completely different one. But we say our same breath. Whenever we use the phrase always or never, at some level we've failed to comprehend. It never happens to me that I have a good meditation. Now we only have that thought because we think we're not having a good meditation and because that's what we believe is always the case. Or it always happens to me that this thing goes on for me, whatever it is. It's happening again. Here is It's like we somehow create a sense of continuity and experience by the way we think about it. And yet if we contemplate, if we contemplate the, the nature of our experience, the fact that it's changing, if we see that, the breath comes in, it goes out. We start to pay attention to that shifting, changing experience. It's a sound, it's a thought, it's a sensation. I'm present, I'm spaced out, I'm feeling great, I'm feeling miserable. It's time for dinner. I'm hungry. It turns out to be rice again. I'm not interested. You know, um, or it's my favorite, you know, bean curry. Or it's, it's, you know, that dressing, that salad dressing, it's just wonderful. I love it. And within moments, I'm thinking about something else. I'm not actually enjoying the loving of this food. See how we move, how the thing changes. The framework keeps shifting. Perhaps we start to get a sense of the urgency of our predicament the ur- or the need for some urgency in our life because change asks us to really take this seriously, the situation, the truth of impermanence, to not be casual about what's happening here. We're not saying, good, you know, I think Leela spoke of this, it's not about getting sort of heavy and serious. Sort of, oh dear, everything's going to change. You might as well not enjoy anything then. Mm. <laughs> you know. 
but more like, okay, so what's important here? And one of the phrases from the Zen tradition that's used as a reflection in this context, you know, the days are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? How well am I spending my time? It's like currency. We don't know how much of it we've got. All we know is that one day we run out of it. And our very life, we live as if it's forever. So easily we think in those terms. Even though we might feel anxious about our retirement, you know, somehow, in another way, we just imagine our existence continuing. And there's this passage from the Bhagavad Gita where there's a conversation between Arjuna, who's really the hero, and Krishna, who's his charioteer, and really who represents wisdom in the, in the dialogue. And the scenario, the, uh, so the Bhagavad Gita is sort of spiritual um, classic teaching and allegory. And um, Arjuna asks Krishna, he says, with your divine eye and wisdom, what is the greatest miracle that you see in this universe? in this world and Krishna responds he says the greatest miracle I see is that while people see others all around them dying they somehow do not believe it will happen to themselves it's like we have this sense of permanence somehow rooted in our psyche in a certain way that although we know that we're not here forever we know that we're not going to kid you know no one expects to be here in 200 years time I don't imagine, you know, barring some you know, unexpected medical breakthroughs, but I'm not holding my breath for that. But do we really know that? The French philosopher, Gaillot, he said once, if we know but do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. Of course, that's a translation. He probably said it in French, but... You know, we know imperfectly. We don't really know. Not in the kind of way that makes us live that knowledge. So in this journey of meditation, and we call it insight meditation, we're not just trying to get some kind of nice experience or calm down and focus, although that's really important. That sense of grounding and focusing supports us. It's healing and nourishing for our heart and our well-being. That making intimate contact with our life starts to bring some of its vitality and juice and nourishment, make it accessible to us. So we're actually, our well-being is supported by this process of gathering, landing, opening, touching our, our life intimately as we're doing. But it's also, we're doing this because as we as we settle more deeply, as we touch in more fully into our life, we start to be able to see more clearly what's going on. And so this process of developing insight is one in which we are engaging in a journey of transformation through correcting our misperceptions. It's a movement from blindness, confusion and delusion to clarity to wisdom and ultimately to coming into harmony with the way life is. And misperception tends to arise for us in so many ways, certainly in this area, because we just don't look that carefully at what's going on. 
we're so used to just taking a very surface impression of things and then flicking on to the next thing. Have you noticed how quickly your mind moves? One or two people were observing, we were talking about this in the, one of the groups today. You know how quickly the mind moves. It touches something, forms an impression that I know what that is, and then moves on to the next thing. Having hardly spent a flicker of an instant really in contact with what's going on. So here we learn to settle the attention a bit more fully, more deeply into this experience. Into this breath, into this moment, this sound. This pause when one thing has ended and the next thing hasn't yet arisen. And just not move so quickly to the next moment or thing. And as we start to do that, we start to see that the truth of impermanence starts to stand out to us. We can't help but begin to notice it. And again, some of you were reflecting, naming this in the conversations today. And so, the way we fail to see it is due to not really paying attention carefully and clearly, but also to do with the way our conceiving minds tend to create a picture of our life. And the best way I've found to try and illustrate this is in kind of a, I guess it's a a metaphor or an image that just imagine as I describe it what this would be for you. If you're driving in a car, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, whatever you drive your car at, on a long straight road. And what you see at the front of the windscreen is the horizon a long way away. And you're travelling towards it at however many miles per hour, but what you see in the horizon isn't changing, is it? It's pretty much going to stay the same on a long straight road. And if you look out the rear of the car, what's behind you on a long straight road, there's not so many of those in Devon, but probably had this experience somewhere else. Also, the back window isn't changing or going anywhere or moving particularly. Hmm? But if you look out your side window, at the side of the road nearby, what do you see? It's a flick. Don't do it while you're driving. It's a bit dangerous. But, you know, um, maybe as a passenger you could try this. But what you'll see is a flickering blur of things going past so quickly you can't pick them out as individuals. Maybe the, 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 the power pile, uh, sort of the power poles, or what do you call them, telegraph, phone poles? I don't know, the, the, the poles on the side of the road you might see. I call them power poles in New Zealand, but I just realise you don't call them that here. Um, you could see them because they're coming every you know, interval. But try and actually focus on the grass. It's just blur. And what happens for us in our normal mode of not very attentive paying attention, or not very focused attentiveness, is that the mind tends to pick up images from the past, and we call it the past, although it's really just a few fragments, a few pieces of the past, because in order to remember a past event with all of the texture and depth it had, it would take us the same amount of time to remember it as it took to have the experience. So there's no way we ever remember our past. We remember fragments, images, and we tend to remember them in such a way that they're just pieces that we formed into a sort of coherent image and said, that's what happened. And because of the way that's created in the mind, it's fixed. It's a solid thing. It's like this. Just like the image out of the rear view mirror 
out of the rear window of the car. And then when we think about the future, in some way or form, we're projecting those experiences from the past into the future. We have no other basis to conceive the future beyond the experiences we've had in the past or we've heard about other people having had in the past. So all we've got. And we again, it's just a, a collage, a construction, and it's a fixed construction. So when we look at our conceived idea of the future, somehow it seems fixed. It gives this impression of solidity, of stasis. It's not changing or moving that much. We might think it's going to be this fixed thing or that fixed thing. So we've got a couple of options. You know, the one I want, the one I don't want. But they both look kind of fixed, solid. And when we live primarily dwelling in the past and the future thinking patterns, reinforces the sense of permanence and fixity in things, in life. So here we come on a retreat and we practice paying attention to where we are now. We practice coming back again and again, despite our mind's enthusiasm for going into the future and our enthusiasm at times for getting into the past. Now, it's not to say that there isn't some importance and value in reflecting on past experience. There are things we can learn from that, of course, and understand about our life, about our experience, about our conditioning. <coughs> And that's an important part of inner work and development. And equally at times we need to reflect upon the future and give consideration to how to attend to future things. None of us would have made it to this room for this meditation um, retreat or for this talk tonight without some of that organisational future thinking capacity. But if we live stuck in that realm, in those realms predominantly, we live in a world in which impermanence and the truth of change doesn't really penetrate. So here, we pay attention, we look, we feel, we sense the immediacy of things. And what we start to notice in that is this truth of change. It starts to show up for us. The Thing, something that's often reported and happens, and at least today on one or two occasions, something's going on. I think, actually, this is really difficult. I need some help with this and writing a note appropriately. And then by the time the interview comes along, which because there's quite a few notes and not so many times for interviews and only two teachers, um, it might be the whole next day later, 24 hours later, and the experience one wrote about wanting to look at or work with, it's not happening anymore. So one talks about it historically, but it's not, oh my gosh, this thing I don't know how to deal with. It's moved on. And that happens. We see things change. And so we can just notice this randomly or almost accidentally, but we can equally bring a conscious, intentional, reflective capacity to this, to contemplate, to see, oh, things are changing. Like, where have all the experiences you had in your life gone? All the thoughts, all the feelings, all the lovely things and all the not-so-lovely things. They're just gone. They're gone. They're gone. And all the things we're yet to encounter, the thoughts that we haven't yet had, the feelings we might experience tomorrow, they're not in a cupboard waiting somewhere for us to unpack them. They don't exist. They're not somewhere else. They don't exist. 
And if we start to tune into this, it's like, wow, things, like changing isn't just an interesting idea. It's something about the reality and the nature of what's going on that touches us very deeply. And it can be a kind of unsettling experience at times. We don't always want to know about this because it's sort of scary. And a lot of what we get involved in, in our life and in our retreat, is trying to create some sense of security for ourselves. Trying to somehow build a defense against the inevitable dissolution of things. Things that include this very mind and body. And we we do that in so many ways. I was starting to have a lot of headaches about a year and a half ago. Couldn't figure it out. Didn't know what was going on. Just a lot of headaches. And then at some point I noticed that actually I seemed to be in relationship to how much time I was looking at pages with words on them. And one of those obvious things that happens at that point in life where I seem to have got to where my eyes are going. And it was really like you know, I'd been ignoring the fact that things were getting blurry for probably about six months mm-hmm. to the point where actually I was getting headaches trying so hard to read it. But I didn't really quite want to let in the fact, it seemed, that actually this guy who was fortunate to have 20-20 eyesight for quite a few decades has got a lot less than that now. And it's like, huh. And then we have to let go. I used to like the fact that I could get all the notes for a whole Dharma talk on one side of paper. <coughs> And I still can, but I can't read them. <laughs> and I've got them on four bits of paper now. It's kind of like something vaguely embarrassing about that. I don't know why, but it is. You know? And like, there we are. I can no longer give you the impression I've got hardly anything written down. <laughs> you know? How embarrassing. It's not me, it's my eyes. But of course... It's not somebody else. You know, it's like, how are we with this when we really encounter it? So much of the urge we have to control experience, to make it be a certain way, is to give a sense of security, to give a sense of something I can rely on, something that won't change, that won't be somehow swept out from under me. And when we find ourselves with really a strong sense of it should be this way or knowing I'm right, that sort of thing, it gives a sense of a certainty, you know, like it's always going to be this way. Like an absolute undeniable, the only unchanging truth is that it's like this. You know, I know. It gives us a sense of something solid or fixed. And we invest in circumstances that we try and create in experiences that we seek to have, in possessions that we want to own. Now, probably coming on a retreat here, you know you're not going to get a lot of materialistic sort of stuff out of this. You know, you could do a lot better shopping for the weekend, a nice mall somewhere, you know. So we kind of understand, yeah, we're not in it for getting more things. And yet there can be a subtle way in which we are still trying to get something that's going to last. Relationships. Views, all of these things offer sometimes this hope of security, but they can't fulfill that promise. They can't actually give us that. And it's something that leads to disappointment. We can have a lot of disappointment 
because we've tried to put our hope for fulfillment in something that can't really give it to us because it doesn't last. It's not forever. And so it's like we really have this life. Two kinds of orientations we could take. At least in this context, there's obviously more than two. But a bit like children building a sandcastle on the beach. You know when you build a sandcastle? Perhaps you've done this in your days, maybe not so long ago. Um, if you want to build a sandcastle, you ever try to build it below the low tide zone? Doesn't work, covered in water, can't do a thing. If you build it above the high tide zone, what happens? Dry sand, can't do a thing, just makes a heap. So you build a sandcastle in the bit where the tide moves, because that's where the damp sand, you can make things out of it. Yeah? And what happens? You can make a nice sandcastle, but the tide comes in. And maybe sometimes children are sad, upset. Oh no, it's destroying my castle. Stop the sea. Stop the sea? Hmm, yeah. Sometimes, oh look, here come the waves and we can just dance around. You see children happily kicking over the castle they've carefully built (laughs) as the waves pour in. It's like, it's not to say we shouldn't give care to building up things that might be beautiful. To cultivating and developing what's wholesome. To contributing to this world what we have to offer. But to understand that those offerings aren't in the service or the fulfilment of making us something that's going to be forever. Not for ourselves, not for someone else. And to live in the spirit of this. Helen Keller, who lived a remarkable life, although she was both deaf and blind, she once said, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, and nor do the children of man as a whole experience it. In the long run, avoiding danger is no safer than direct, outright exposure. Life is either a glorious adventure, or it is nothing. Remarkable words. Life is either a glorious adventure or it's nothing. It's like we lose our life when we hold so tight to it. When we allow it to move, we receive it. And of course, you know, the fact of impermanence isn't all bad news. In fact, sometimes we're really quite happy about it. Things would be kind of crowded around here if it wasn't for that. I know. Everybody who'd ever been here was still here? Boy, you think this is a full meditation hall. And, you know, when we're working with difficult things, just bringing in this remembrance, this reflection, ah, yeah. When we're struggling, it's often because we've forgotten that this is not forever. And when we remember it, we remember impermanence. Ah, yeah, I can be with this, because it's not forever. It's not forever. So we give attention to the changing nature of experience. 
looking at that so we can start to remember it so that we notice when something difficult that felt like it was going to be here for the rest of my life it's useful just to pay attention when it shifts and say ah that's changed that didn't last as long as i had feared it would maybe it lasted a while sure it was difficult but it changed And so that when we next maybe are in a difficult place, we can remember. Yes, this is difficult. Maybe I need some support or help. But let me remember that this too will change. One of my teachers used to to say in in Thai, Ben Anicca Due, this too shall change. This too shall pass. Anicca is the word the Buddha used for change and permanence non-lastingness so so there's that sense of where you know impermanence actually is a great relief and good fortune to us that difficult things also are not forever now it doesn't really help when something's as difficult to think you know come on impermanence come on impermanence you know that doesn't really help that's just another version of aversion of ill will in a way and what's more useful is just to contemplate okay can I do this for now? Can I meet this for now? Because the truth is, I'm already meeting this for now. It's already happening. And we can. You can meet this if we meet it just for now. Because it's already happening. It's here. You're here. And in any moment, we can do this. But impermanence isn't just a kind of, you know get out of jail card and that sort of sense of bringing the difficult to an end it's also very much at the heart of what we can most value and love in life things that touch us with a sense of real beauty inevitably have an element of impermanence to them have you noticed what happens when you go into it happens to me anyway going into a restaurant and there's some very beautiful flowers it seems but one can't quite tell if they're real and you get up close and you see this is a plastic flower And although, in one sense, the distant appearance from it was that that might be a nice thing when you get close to it, it doesn't have that feeling to it. And it's not because it doesn't look just as good as a flower, a real one, but it's almost because there isn't any petal starting to curl or break or any sense of it being in a transitional process. It's just fixed. It's lifeless. The life that we appreciate can't be separated from that transitional, transitory nature. If there's a sunset that we're enjoying, I mean, you ever get stood at a sunset? You know, I'm sure you've had that opportunity, not in the last few days maybe. But uh, this grey weather will change. It's guaranteed. When? Who knows? But it will. But you know, if it stays, there's some nice golden reds and oranges, yellows or purples or whatever. If we looked at it and it stayed exactly the same, how long would we be enthralled? And fascinated by it. I'd give myself about three minutes maximum before it went, you know. <laughs> it's like if it keeps changing, and they do, it's slowly fading, and you know it's not going to be here long, and it's the reds are going to oranges to, to, to purples, and you know it's shifting, it's going to be gone in ten minutes. I'll stay there, rooted to the spot watching. But if it stays the same, you know, I think I'll go and have a cup of tea. Really. Something about Beauty and impermanence arise together. 
And also the sense of what's precious for us, what really touches our hearts. It's somehow we feel and know that preciousness in in, in much clearer relief or it stands out to us when we know the non-permanence of things. My wife and I, when we got married, as the uh, opening of our ceremony, we had a, in fact, Catherine sang a, a song that we sort of crafted from an Aztec poem, of which the basic, or Aztec prayer, in fact, of which the basic refrain was, only for a short time, life has loaned us to each other. And I think for one or two people, at the wedding, that was a little bit of a strange thing to start that event with, which is all about, quote, you know, something that's supposed to go on forever, but obviously isn't guaranteed that that will happen for anyone, you know. Certainly it doesn't even necessarily last one's own lifetime. But, um, but that sense of just bringing forth that sense of, we don't know how long we've got, actually makes what one has that much more precious. One feels that very keenly in that kind of reflection. And uh, another way that I'm often touched with this is at a a monastery in uh, West Sussex, Chitturist, Buddhist monastery, or Chittavaveka, so it's Pali name. Um, There's a sort of a memorial garden that's grown over the years, but ever since I've been going there, um, which is quite a number of years now, there's been one very small little plaque that was perhaps one of the first memorials that was ever placed on their grounds. And it has a little poem, a haiku, I guess, that reads like this. It says, The cherry blossom covers the hillside for but a few days. Any longer, and we should not treasure it so. And underneath is just the name, Little Sam, and a single date. And I see that, and I go there whenever I go to the monastery. And I just take a little time just to contemplate, and I feel the sense of the preciousness of that life that was just for one day. So beautifully communicated. At least that's what I understand from what that says. Just a single date. And that sense of, it's not less precious because it wasn't longer, that life. Perhaps more so. All its preciousness known in just that. So we can allow ourselves to be touched by life. To see that the significance of impermanence, of change, of transitoriness, is that it informs us about how to live our life. When we see that this is how things are, when we understand that we're living in rental accommodation, this mind, this body, this life, temporary temporary digs, we start to relate to it differently. One of the things that I really notice when I contemplate and reflect on this is that that urge to fix it or improve it or somehow expect and demand it to be perfect and the way we can do that with ourselves that Leela was speaking about last night, somehow this softens and starts to drop a little bit away when we know we don't have it forever. It's like we're grateful for what we have. And it's okay for now. 
when we know I don't have it forever. And this was strikingly illustrated to me, actually, in that situation I described the second scenario where we were invited in to stay with someone and our friends who just bought this house. Because we went down and I was like, wow, this is a really lovely big house. It's got all these rooms, nice fireplaces, big windows. How wonderful. But our friends, and you know, quite natural, they looked at it and thought, oh, oh, we could move this wall. We could change that room. We could add one of these over there. And it was such a different experience we had. Because we knew we weren't there for very long. We didn't realise it was going to be quite that short. But um, they essentially were there for the rest of their lives, which is forever from the psychological point of view. And there's no criticism of that. No. Have I have a house now where I have kind of a similar relationship? I can see that want to improve things. When one has a place like that. But if we understand this body, these states of mind, these feelings, these thoughts, and this very life is borrowed, is impermanent, is not forever. Maybe we don't need to make it accord with our preferences so exactly. We don't have to put so much pressure on it, but actually we can say, hey, I've got it for now. What a blessing. What a blessing. I mean, including that, yes, sometimes it's really hard. Some of what happened really was horrible. But hey, I'm here. And some of what it has involved has been sweet and beautiful and lovely. And that's part of all of our story, for sure. So learning to let ourselves really be in this world. Part of what that means is allowing ourselves to touch and be touched by life. To not take hold of it. To see how transient it is. How fluid, ephemeral and light it moves in a certain way. There's a, a refrain from the, the Diamond Sutra, which is a teaching of the, the Mahayana or the later northern schools of Buddhism. It uh, goes like this. It says... Thus you should look upon this fleeting world. A drop of dew, a star of dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a mirage and a dream. It's like this this cascade of images of evanescence, of transitory things, just one after another. It kind of brings the sense invites, invokes that sense of just life pouring through the space of this moment. We can't hold on to any of it. And yet, that, that way, the way to be with this is to really let ourselves make contact deeply and intimately with each moment. The wisdom of change informs our relationship to life our relationship to both the agreeable and the disagreeable experiences. Learning to let go of that which we like, to not hold it. Learning to let be that which we find difficult, to not resist it. And it's expressed beautifully in a poem by William Blake, some of you may be familiar with. He writes, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies 
lives on in eternity's sunrise. <clears throat> I find the imagery beautiful and so precise and kind of like he managed to say in just a few words what I'm going to go on about for hours. Um, hopefully not literally hours. But that that sense of to bind oneself to a joy, to take hold of something that we love, to, it's to destroy the winged life, the sense of lightness, of freedom, of movement, of uplift <coughs> that that expresses. And yet it doesn't, doesn't mean stay distant or sort of far removed from life. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. That image of kissing the joy, allowing ourselves to make intimate contact, even though brief or momentary, but intimate contact with what's flying, what's moving, what's alive and dynamic, passing through the space of this moment. As we learn to do this more fully, to live in eternity's sunrise, Blake is pointing to the the dawn of the timeless, to something we discover in this in this contact, in this immediacy, in this intimacy with what's here. And so again, she who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. She who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. We're asked to look at what's going on here in our life. To look deeply, wholeheartedly, with, with curiosity and with passion, in fact. For our life. Because the fact of its impermanence is something we need to let in in order to let go of our demand for the things that we encounter to give us something they cannot. And yet, if we are no longer seeking satisfaction or permanent fulfillment from things which are changing, we open ourselves, if we're interested, if we're here, to being touched to be touched by life in a way that reveals what it is that in our hearts we long for and look for. The Buddha in setting off on his own journey asked himself the question why should I who am subject to birth, aging, sickness and death why should I who are Subject to being born, to becoming, and to dying. Why should I seek for other things that are similarly subject to coming and to going, to birth and to death? Should I not seek being myself subject to birth, aging, to death, to coming and to going? Should I not seek for that which is not subject to birth, to aging, to sickness, death? 
to not subject to coming and to going. And in his awakening, in his transmission of these teachings, he came to the statement, there is that which is unborn, unbecome, undying. And because there is that, liberation is possible for human beings. And yet that isn't something that we see or hear or taste or touch. Because all those things are things that come and go. It's not something we think or feel in the way we normally think and feel. And so what's being pointed to here? In my early years of practice, I spent quite a lot of time in Asia and had good fortune to do some practice in a in a monastery in Budgaya, the uh, the place in which the Buddha's enlightenment took place. And at the uh, the Thai temple there, a place some of you will know, um, had the good fortune to to be on retreat as much as we were and are practicing here, sitting, walking, standing, and. I'd been the year before and come back very enthusiastic in the, in the midst of my retreat. One of the things I was really enjoying were these puppies, these little creatures that would run about all over the grounds. And the monasteries are something of a, of a sanctuary in Asia where life is pretty tough for a lot of the beings, human beings and certainly non-human beings, creatures. And so you'd find chickens and dogs and puppies and occasionally even sort of donkeys turning up at the monasteries and somehow finding this a place they could live and you know cats and chickens that I say all sorts of creatures but anyway the puppies seem to really just have captured my attention they're so full of life and joy it seemed and they'd be running about and you know come when you're walking really mindfully they just bump into your foot before you put it on the ground just to check if you're really mindful or licking your plate you know even before I finish my dinner sometimes obviously trying to help out and I just felt full of this love and appreciation for these little creatures and then after I'd been there about a week or more, I suddenly realised, and it shocked me completely, I realised I thought they were the same puppies who'd been there last year. Because <laughs> they were exactly the same. They looked the same, they did the same things, I loved them the same. They must be the same. And it was only when I suddenly realised, oh, of course they're not the same creatures. Something just clicked. And it was like, huh. And the phrase that came to my mind was, puppies come and go. (laughs) But puppy nature, puppy nature is unchanging. What it is that's shining out of and through these beings is exactly the same. So there's this inquiry here, this interest to see, so what is it that's here? That's changing? Because we want to see that clearly and know it clearly for ourselves. And what else is here? What else is here?
this that is changing is not something that defines ultimately who and what we are, this body, this mind, this world. Although what we can come to understand of that is not other than or in any any way separate from this that we call body, mind, heart, world. And yet when we cease to seek for lasting satisfaction from this dance of life, when we engage in it wholeheartedly and allow ourselves to love the joy and grieve the sorrow fully, something else can happen. There's a poem by... Joyce Wellwood, which I haven't written out in big words, which I'd like to read. It's called The Dakini Speaks. A Dakini is a, um, uh, an feminine, feminine embodiment of enlightenment. I'm not sure I've worn glasses in this hall before. This might be a first. It won't be the last. The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human ripe beings. But please let's not act so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride, Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for safe passage. There isn't one anyway. And the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for that which cannot be lost. Let us dance the wild dance of no hope. Can we allow ourselves to be so intimate, so open, so in contact with the full range of our experience, the sweet, the painful, the neutral, the whole unfoldment, to be so intimate with it that we start to drop through it, that we start to dissolve into it, that we no longer hold ourselves apart from it. And in that simple beingness, 
the conscious presence that's just this. We too, in our own hearts, can understand the truth of all that changes and be touched, be penetrated by the truth that is changeless. So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. And so may we all in our practice here together and in our lives come to truly see the changing nature of all things and to realize the Dharma which is changeless. For our own liberation, and for the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.